Hello, welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. I am glad you could join me for yet another special episode of the podcast. Uh, this season we've had a couple different special episodes, mostly because it has been an eventful few weeks. Uh, I think we were just talking to my producer here that we've had about three special episodes. So, uh, you know, on one hand that's great. It means that there's extra episodes and you get a chance to listen to my beautiful voice in addition to the normal 10 episode a season. Um, but it also means that we've kind of you know lost the thread of the of the original kind of discussion which is about the development of the denominations of islam sunni and shiism and the kind of third episode to that which will be coming out i promise after the special episode um that talks about the theology that is that develops within islam so we'll get that final bit of theology in there but i did want to take a moment to talk today about what's actually going on in the news and that's because because history is not just something about the past. It's not about memorizing a series of dates. Um, and I've said this on this podcast over and over again. And in particular, the very purpose of this podcast is to engage with people and use history to in- interact with people beyond the classroom. To see history as what it fundamentally is. That, that which is to provide a context. That context is prologue that what we see today and what's going on in the contemporary world has its roots in that past and by understanding that past and the dynamics that produce the present we are better able and equipped to deal with the future uh, people often look at historians and tell us oh well tell us something about the past or 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 you know give us about past events but it's more than that it's about analysis for the contemporary and i do be- and i'm one of the firm believers uh, you could say i'm a true believer if you will a bit of a zealot in some regards, that historians are probably the best equipped academics to deal with answering contemporary issues. Now, that's not to say the other disciplines can't. There are a lot of great things that come out of political science and sociology um, and uh, anthropology and a variety of different fields. Economics, not so much. Um, But definitely these other fields offer certain answers, but I think the most holistic uh, vision and worldview and, and method of analysis comes out of history. And so I do want to talk today a little bit about the history of Iran. As those of you who watch the news know, there are currently protests gone going in Iran. Uh, they started off in small rural villages organized originally by hardliners on the right. Uh, and people, this has kind of been forgotten, the narrative that's dominated the news is originally these were people who were pushing back against the reformist president Rouhani. But they were quickly overtaken by disgruntled younger folk, uh, and they're ongoing even now as of today, which as I'm recording this is January 3rd. So they've been going on for roughly about a week now, uh, and the government has violently suppressed them, and upwards of maybe 10 to 20 people have been killed. In turn, this has somewhat radicalized some of the protests, and we're seeing a bit of vandalism and and more of a a kind of exuberant yet yet violent uh, approach from the protesters themselves. And then amidst all of this, you have those people who are trying to take advantage of the chaos. You have the old hawkish wing of the U.S. foreign policy elites who have reared their shameless heads again. And even Donald Trump has crudely and inelegantly weighed in. Many view these calls uh, supporting the kind of protesters, um, you know, with some hesitation. And there's some justification or justified reasons why these, these kind of supports these uh oh we support the iranian people why people view that with with hesitation on one hand there's a sort of cynicism there right um the the fact that suddenly this administration which has let's not forget banned iranians from coming into this country that cannot be overstated right they have literally banned and i mean i as a person who's lived through this moment as a and as a historian i'm thinking that decades from now the images of 72 year old iranian grandmothers being handcuffed is going to be seared into my memory it's not something that i'm going to be forgetting so you on one hand you have moments like that where the united states is arresting little 72 year old grandma iranian grandmas and the other hand it's like oh well we support the iranian 
Union people. So there's a bit of cynicism there, but there's also a history there um, that we're going to talk about in a bit. Now, on the same hand, the Iranian government itself is also downplaying the protests and accusing foreign interests of stirring the pot. So we're going to talk about where how this history comes to be. Is there truth there? But also as a, as a kind of reminder that the situation in Iran is complicated. Now, my personal politics aside, you know, I'm a big believer in protests and a big supporter of the people. Uh, for those that know me and who listen to, to my kind of body of work and all my writings that I've done, I'm a big believer in supporting the people. So I'm on the side of protesters on this. But I'm also one of those people that is a firm believer of saying the U.S. needs to stay out of getting involved or meddling. And we're going to talk about why, because there is a complicated history. Uh, first, the protests in Iran are not a new thing. There is a strong, strong civil society in Iran that is active, and it is the very foundation of actually the current Islamic Republic that sprung up from protest and revolution. So let's look at how this civil society came to be and how it produced the Islamic Republic of Iran and what it has anything to do with the contemporary uh, moment and the protest. Uh, though many talk about Iran as a sort of ancient civilization, and Iranians themselves will do so. We are descendants of Persia, and we were these ancient people. The idea of a contiguous Iranian identity isn't borne out in history. Uh, the reality is that it, it's a much more modern phenomenon where you have this Iranian, uh, unified Iranian idea and identity. Now, it is true that Iran as a concept does exist in the pre-modern world. You have the language of Iran Ashar, that is a, a region from the Oxus to the Euphrates, seen as a vast kind of region. We see it, the language, we have also notions of the Parsi, the people who speak Farsi, the, this kind of notion found in Ferdowsi's writing, uh, the Shahnameh. And uh, the famed historian Turaj Daryoi, the Sasanian and Iranologist, who happens to be my, my mentor, has written uh, about the prehistory or the pre-modern history of, of Iran Shah. It is also true that the modern-day Iran is descended from much ancient societies, the societies of the Achaemenid and Sasanian. But that a singular kind of Iranian identity, an Iranian people, singular concept, unified and contiguous, has not existed. It is much more complicated than that. For much of Iran's history, there are people there that were Arab, there are people there that are Armenian, there are people that are Turkic, and it's all kind of mixed together. And you're actually going to see this. The beginnings of the kind of first modern state of Iran, or the first that we start to see the beginning of this kind of formation, is in 1501. So this kind of debunks already this idea of always from, from the ancient Achaemenid times until modern Iran, it's one people. Not necessarily true. 1501, you have this guy named Ismail. Ismail um, was actually a Kurd who was descended from what's known as the Safavid order. Now, the Safavids were a Sunni Sufi organization. But at some point, and we don't know why, Ismail converts to Shiism. And Shah Ismail becomes a Shia and a very devout Shia. And he creates the first major Iranian state, and that's known as the Safavid dynasty or the Safavid emirate, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's actually a military state. It's a military state that is descendant from the Turco dynasties of the Timurids. That would be Tamerlane or Temerilang. Um, he carves out this empire, defeats the local tribes, and creates the central empire. Ismail forges this group. Now, at this particular time, the majority of the people living in this region, what is known as the Iranian Plateau, are actually Sunni. That's right. This is something that most people kind of forget. The majority of these people are Sunni. Shiism is a very small group at this particular time. Shiism represents a small elite uh, family and dynastic uh, group that's often found in some of these Turco regions. It's very much along the lines of Sufi order. So they're, they're a little bit smaller. But Shah Ismail sees Shiism as central to the identity of this new empire, the 
Safavid Empire that he is creating. And in particular, he sees Shiism as oppositional to the two empires that surround the Safavids. On one side, you have the Mughals that are ruling in South Asia, uh, what later becomes India. And on the other side, you have the Ottomans, which are ruling in Anatolia, and the Levant, which later becomes Turkey and uh, Lebanon and Syria and that region. And so he caught between these two massive Sunni dynasties, he sees Shiism as the way to coalesce and create a new ideology. And so what he does is he imports Shiism into the area. He brings from Iraq and Lebanon mujtahids. Mujtahids are religious scholars in the Shia tradition. Now, most of these scholars that he's bringing over are actually of Arab descent. These are people who are speaking Arabic. They are people who were born in Lebanon and Iraq. And he brings them over into um, his territories and he gets them to become the religious justification for the state. He argues that the true Islam is Shiism because he says so. And because the Ayatollahs or the Mujtahid say so, he is the rightful leader. So you see this kind of fantastic relationship that happens between the state and religion. The legitimacy of the state is found in the faith, that is Shiism, and the legitimacy of the faith, that is Shiism, is found in the state. And so there's this relationship of back and forth. He goes, you know, Shiism is the rightful religion. How do you know? Well, I'm the leader. Well, why are you the leader? Well, it's because the Shias say I'm the leader. So it's this, you know, very mutually beneficial relationship. And he does see himself as the guardian of Shiism. And key, the key to kind of the mass conversion that happens is first is military might. He does purge the region of Sunnis. So there is a mass persecution of Sunnis. And in particular, and that persecution eventually leads the Ottomans to invade because the Ottomans saw themselves as the guardians of Sunnis. And so this we start to see the first kind of stirrings of, of, of conflict between Sunni and Shia, contrary to the kind of the, the earlier history in which Sunnis and Shias got along with one another. The second component of this is in addition to purging out the Sunnis, he also establishes a tradition of the Taziyah. The Taziyah are a series of kind of drama plays in which the people or the plays dramatically and theatrically commemorate the Battle of Karbala. Now we talked about the Battle of Karbala both in season one and in season two when we talked about Shiism. It is the martyrdom of the family of Muhammad, of the of Prophet Muhammad, specifically his grandchildren. And so the Battle of Karbala becomes this kind of central point around which Shia identity is created. Now Shiism had already accepted the martyrdom of Karbala as an important part of the theology of of Shiism, and we we talked about this a little bit uh, in our episode on the history of Shiism, and we're going to talk about this further when we talk about theology. But it also now becomes part of the national character. Those who were part of the Safavid dynasty are those people who are participating in this Taziyah plays, while the religious justifications are coming in the forms of the Mujtahid. Together, they allow a mass conversion to happen. And by the death of uh, Shah Ismail, the majority of people have converted to Shiism. This is also the time of the height of Persian culture. So we start to see a commemoration, this idea that we're not just Muslims. We're not just a people. We are a Persianate people. We speak a particular language, and that is the language of classical Persian. We see them adopt a lot of the kind of developments in the, the 10th century under the Samanids and the Ghaznavids, both of whom were more kind of Turco-Persian. They absorb those kind of the Renaissance that happens at that moment and says, well, this is our culture and our history. And so you see this kind of flourishing of Persianate culture and a Persianate expression of, of Islam specifically 12 Shiism under the Safavids. It's a beautiful example of violent, but also a beautiful example of how um, national character can be forged. In this way, national character is forged through the empire of the Safavids. They do a great job, and it is a very successful project. 
It's carried on by his descendants. It's carried on by Shah Abbas, who is the kind of apogee of the state. It expands to the the highest the highest uh, st- uh, territorial bounds that it has, and it also inv- creates a sub- series of uniquely Persian architecture. We see this in uh, Isfahan in 1598. The beautiful architecture, the blue mosques, the use of turquoise and the lapis. All and and the, the minarets and the domes and the use of arcs are all part of this kind of moment, this Safavid moment in both Shiism and the state and Persian culture intersect with one another. And this is also helps us understand how Shia Islam becomes central to Iran. Uh, Iran, again, this particular region was Sunni, and we see this conversion that happens. And it starts it's with this tie with politics, imperial politics. And that becomes very important to understand for later on. But the era of Shah Abbas also is the beginnings of a series of wars. It is a, known as the Ottoman Safavid Wars, and it is conflict between the Ottomans, who are Sunni, and the Safavids, who are Shia. We see for the first time in centuries, now we had seen the early civil wars, but most of Islamic history, we saw Sunni and Shias collaborate. The height of the Golden Age, the Abbasids, is a result of the collaboration of Sunnis and Shias. But now there is a very very clear split, Sunni versus Shia, and that is a result of the geopolitical machination. So contrary to this, the kind of language that we see today of an ancient conflict between Sunnis and Shias, and how Iraq is a is an example of Sunnis and Shias fighting with one another, and that Saudi Arabia and Iran don't get along because it's Sunni and Shiism, not true at all. It's actually a result of the geopolitics of the region. Both the Ottomans and the Safavids were fighting over Iraq. They were fighting over this territory that even today we're fighting over. Iraq was, people were saying, we want to control Iraq. The Ottomans said they wanted to control it. The Safavids said they wanted to control it. And despite, and so religious justifications, Shiism versus Sunnism, were used to explain what is fundamentally a geopolitical shift and a geopolitical conflict. The result is that the modern Middle East is born, the kind of power structure of the model, modern Middle East is born out of the conflict. The triangulation of Turkey, Egypt, and Iran, something that remains the most important kind of power balance of the Middle East up until the 20th century, comes out of that particular moment. Now, the Safavids eventually collapsed. In 722, a rival chief in Afghanistan actually seizes Isfahan, and it brings the Safavids to an end. So you can thank the Afghans for the end of the Safavids. And in 1794, a new dynasty emerges under Fat Ali Shah, the Qajar. Now, the Qajars are a military institution. They're a military dynasty that desperately want to have the same central power as the Safavids, but they never quite accomplish it. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Qajars are fundamentally military commanders, but they lack the same relationship with the the Mujtahids. Now, the Mujtahids and the Safavids had a very close relationship with one another. They justified and legitimized one another's rules. The Qajars aren't justifying their rules based off of the power or the religious authority of the Mujtahids, the Shia clerics. Instead, they're justifying their power by military might. And so there is this split that happens between the state which is ruled by the Qajars, and civil society, which is still under the influence of the Mujtahids, that is, Shia clerics. The Shia clerics also emerge as really autonomous at this time, and that is because they have what are known as waqafs. Waqafs are religious endowments that make them financially independent. They are not reliant on the state to pay them. They're not reliant on tax money to pay them. They have their own funding vis-a-vis the waqafs. And so they have a... By being autonomous, they have their own power base. This is very different in the Sunni world, where a lot of the clerics ended up being just legitimizers of the state. If you look at the Ottoman world, the ulema ended up being really just rubber stampers for the Ottomans because the, uh, they relied on the Ottoman state to fund them. We don't see that in the, in the Shia world or in the world of the Qajar dynasty. And what happens, because of this autonomous, financially independent religious institution that no longer is tied to the state, we now see a tension emerge between them, a competition of power. You have the Qajars who are 
trying to centralize power. Well, you have the Shia clerics who is not allowing them centralized power, and they remain a stronghold over education and particularly um, the power of the justice system. And it's in the 19th century that we start to see the Mujtahids refer to themselves as Ayatollahs, that is the signs of God. So we've all the term Ayatollah, right? The big, scary, bearded guy wearing all black. Well, that term Ayatollah comes from this split between the Qajars and the religious clergy. It is a moment in history where the clergy emerge as a very powerful, dominant force separate from the state. And the Ayatollah then becomes an interpreter of God's will vis-a-vis -vis the Imam, right? Shia Islam has Imams. They have Imams who interpret God's will, who interpret the Quran, and the last Imam is gone into occultation, it's hidden. And so he has viceroys, and the viceroys are the Mujtahids who are now known as Ayatollahs. And there's, you know, there's Ayatollahs that, that are known as the Grand Ayatollahs, and there's all sorts of rankings there. But what's important is that you have this division within the Iranian society between the military established bureaucracy that rules the government and the religious clergy that uh, rules or at least influences civil society. At the same time that you have these kind of internal divisions, the 19th century also saw Iran caught in the great game. The great game was the imperial machinations of Russia and Great Britain. Russia and Great Britain were these massive empires that had just kind of exploded across the Middle East. Suddenly the British had showed up in India and they had just goofed everything up. The, the British had conquered the, the Mughals, they had established their own uh, colonies, the East India Trading Company was screwing everyone over left and right. It was none of that, you know, it was not Jack Sparrow swinging on ropes and drinking rum. It was more like we're going to suppress the brown man and change his name from Raj to Mike. So, so that's what the East India Trading Company was doing in India while the Russians were expanding territorially. And so, you know, you had this Qajars who on one hand had to contend with the Ayatollahs and on the other hand had to contend with these massive empires that are right on their doorsteps. Nasr al-Din Shah, one of the longest reigning Qajars, in 1848 literally created a military group known as the Kassak Brigade, which were basically guys who were uh, run by Russian commanders and had Russian weapons and Russian clothing. This left Iran in a weird kind of position. On one hand, it was absorbing the influences of Russia and Britain. And on the other hand, um, you had resentment because of that. There were territorial concessions given to Russia, that is, territories that were originally part of the Safavid Empire, given over to Russia. Now, this alarmed Britain deeply. And as a result, Britain invaded Afghanistan. So there was this famous Anglo-Afghan wars. The Anglo-Afghan wars were really a result of... Um, Britain and, and the British Empire trying to intervene in Central Asia or South Asia and create a buffer zone between them and Russia. These territorial concessions and the influence of the British led to a series of struggles within Iran itself. And now we're getting to where we're setting, we've kind of set up the prologue, we've set up the context, right? Where we've seen the, the, the rise of an autonomous religious body, these clerics who were originally essential to the state, but then emerged as kind of autonomous. We're seeing a kind of central Iranian state, the Qajars, caught between kind of imperial interests. And this theme, that theme and that tension is going to be something that repeats itself. Indeed, you know, the, my kind of motto for the uh, podcast has always been Mark Twain's quote that history doesn't repeat itself, but it oft rhymes. So this moment of imperial interests competing and then the tension between an autonomous religious elite versus a centralized authority is going to be the rhyme that repeats itself over and over again. So what happens is, is in 1890... The uh, Qajar dynasty cuts a deal with a British company. Remember this. They cut a deal with the British company so that the British company can own and sell all of Iranian tobacco. Now, this causes a great deal of tension because tobacco is a very popular product in Iran. It's a common, uh, you know, narcotic smoked by a lot of workers. What happens is that a mujtahid in Shiraz demands that the people boycott tobacco. Boycott tobacco because it was embarrassing 
that Iranians had to have their tobacco controlled by the British. It was embarrassing that the British were able to come in and take what is fundamentally cultivated as an Iranian product and then own it and sell it back to Iranians. And he uses religious justification. He argues, uses religious interpretation, argues that this was a threat to Islam. This then led the people on a boycott. This is the first time we're starting to see a union of the people, a mass popular movement led by some form of religious interpretation, and they boycott tobacco. And as a result, in 1892, the Shah breaks the contract. He goes, you know what? Just can't deal with it. We're done with the contract. Now, that's at the first moment we see that union, and we're going to see it over and over again. In, 19, in 1906, we see that same union come about yet again. There is a demand for a constitution. This is, comes again in this moment of being caught between these kind of massive empires. In the, in the early 20th century, it's the British Empire. You have France over in North Africa. Russia is still a main influence. And you're starting to see the ideas of Europe seep into uh, specifically into Iran. You had those people that were pushing for more and more westernization to develop a sort of western relationship. You had others that were arguing for modernization, that is to create more effective uh, systems and, and social structures and bureaucracies. And you had uh, the religious elite. And in 1906, there was a push for a parliamentary system. There was a push for a parliament that would check the power of the Shah, who fundamentally saw themselves as a sort of absolute monarchy. And the Iranians were saying, no, we want something more than an absolute monarchy. And in 1906, they finally got it. What they did is beautiful. The Iranian people gathered in the embassy of, of Britain, and they would give speeches and they would give these beautiful arguments and they would give these they would recite poetry and they would you know argue for this movement in this chain and they called this a majlis which basically just means a gathering that small gathering became the seed of a parliament the parliament today is known as the majlis that is a gathering and so that moment of an intellectual gathering produced a political gathering and in 1906 um the the king or the Shah, Musafar ad-Din, agreed to it. Now, the reason that the constitutionalists were successful was that they were actually supported yet again by the religious elite. The constitutionalists wanted to check the power of the Shah. Now, who better to check the power of the Shah than a completely autonomous religious group? The Ayatollahs, these people who didn't rely on the government, who had their own religious legitimization and authority based off of Shiism, they too were like, hey, you know what? We agree with this checking of, of power. And one of the most powerful Ayatollahs, who actually lived in Iraq, not in Iran, but Ayatollah al-Khurasani argued, you know what? The con what we need is a constitution. So you have a religious leader arguing for a constitution. He joins this popular mass movement. Again, just like the tobacco protest, a union of religious elites with mass movement. And in 1906, Musafir ad-Din, he signs the constitution. But the problem is, Musafir ad-Din's ass dies within a year. He signs this constitution, goes, all right, great, we'll give you guys a constitution, you can have a parliament, and he dies. And Muhammad Ali Shah comes in, and Muhammad Ali Shah is like, I don't want to do this. I don't want a constitution. I don't want a parliament. So he, he abolishes all of it. And so what happens is he turns to the Russians. The British were all for constitution because it meant that it would check the power of the Shah and they saw a way to kind of enter in and influence. And they really mobilized southern Iran in regards to a constitutionalist revolution. And then you had northern Iran, which was much more under the influence of Russia, fighting against it. In fact, the Russians led to a series of, of, of of, of political assassinations and executions against the constitutionalists. But uh, Muhammad Ali eventually fails. He's not able to succeed. And so this conflict goes on for about 1906 to 1911. And finally, they overthrow Muhammad Ali and they put his son or descendant in power, Ahmad Shah Qajar. And that's the establishment known, that is known as the Constitutional Revolution of Iran.
or also known as the Persian Constitutional Revolution. The Persian Constitutional Revolution establishes a parliamentary system that checks the absolute power of the Qajar dynasty. But it doesn't last long. In 1921, a coup happens. A military commander by the name of Reza Shah. Now, Reza Shah is actually possibly a Turkish-speaking individual. In the same way that Ismail Shah was a Kurd, uh, Reza Shah is actually a uh, Turk, or at least Turkic-speaking. And he comes from the region near the Caspian. And he takes, he seizes power. In 1921, this is known as the Persian coup. He brings in his military forces, the Qajar dynasty caught between the tension of the religious elite, between the mobilization of the power of their ability to mobilize the people, and these massive empires, the Russians and the British, are unable to really sustain themselves. Their military might is very weak, and they're overthrown in 1925 by this new dynasty known as the Pahlavi. And in 1925, from 1921, they're overthrown. 1925, the Pahlavi are fully accepted by the constitution. Uh, the constitution is amended, and the parliament accepts the Pahlavi dynasty as the new kings of Iran. And it is important that even though this is a coup, and Reza Shah is often seen as a kind of modernizer, he is an absolute monarch. And there's a lot of tensions with the Pahlavis. On one hand, you have people today who really are pro-believers of the Pahlavis. They are big proponents of them. And even as we're speaking, the, some of the descendants of the Pahlavis are using Twitter and whatnot to call out the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, Reza Shah is a modernizer and a westernizer. He's also a secularist in that regards because he sees this autonomous religious body that emerged during the Qajar period as a threat to his rule. He sees these individuals, he's like, they have their own power base, and they have managed to lead these mass movements, first with the tobacco protests, then with the Persian Constitutional Revolution. So he sees them as a threat, and so he's a secularist. He models himself in some ways after Ataturk in Turkey. He does see himself, but whereas Ataturk is a Republican, that is, he believes in establishing a Republic of Turkey, Reza Shah is a monarchist. But he is a modernizer and a westernizer. He modernizes the military system and the education system. But he also takes on the religious institutions. He tries to create a sort of secularist society. And in 1935, he actually bans the chadar and the kola. The kola is a religious head garment that males wore. And the chadar is the religious headscarf that women wore. Now, here's the thing. People more often than not assume that it's the Muslims that are enforcing religious garb. Today, when you look at Iran, it is indeed the the uh, religious, the Islamic Republic of Iran that forces women to wear the chadar, the black uh, headscarf. But what people forget, it was actually not the Muslims that first enforced it. Indeed, there was never any enforcement laws in the pre-modern history of Islam that told people what they needed to wear, what they didn't need to wear. People wore it on their own. It was up to them to decide what they wear. It was actually the secularists that were first deciding that they were going to control what people wore. 1935, he passes an ordinance that bans religious garb. Women are not allowed to wear the chadar, and men had to wear Western suits. Now, on one hand, this is an attempt to be a secular, to attack the religious elite. On the other hand, he's trying to create national character. And he's arguing that the Iranian national character is fundamentally internationalist. And Kemal Ataturk does the exact same thing. Kemal Ataturk bans the fez in Turkey and institutes a fedora-looking hat, a hat that has a brim. And that's because they're both trying to create a kind of international garb so that they can create a national character that is not based on religion, but is based on something else, a national identity. It's not Islam that unites us. It's that we are all Turks, or in Iran, we are all Persian. So you see this idea coming out under the Pahlavis of a kind of ancient Persian identity. And this is where this comes from. The kind of language that we've been talking about, oh, people think of Iran as ancient, right? Whereas the history doesn't pound. It comes out of the Pahlavi moment that goes, we're not united by Islam. It's we're united by an ancient history. We are one people from the Achaemenid times to right now. And he models himself. He uses the emblems of ancient Persian empires in order to justify this. 
he also tries to bypass the ulema by creating his own judges. The ulema, remember, used education and the judicial system as their basis of power. And in 1932, he attacks the direct base of the religious elite, and that is the waqif. The waqif was what the, the endowments that allowed the ayatollahs to be financially autonomous. And in 1932, he directly attacks it. In the middle of this kind of massive reorganizing of Iranian society, that's going on on the inside, while there is imperial formulations on the outside between the British, the French, and the Russians, emerges a kind of third movement. And that's important to understand, or a third force. And this third force is epitomized by a guy named Ali Shariati. Ali Shariati is the ideologue behind the Iranian Revolution. He grew up in a very modest reformist house. He went and educated, was educated in Sorbonne in, in France. And he was interested in this, in this book called Abu Zar, the God-Worshipping Socialist, which is arguably believed to be the first Muslim socialist. This guy who rejects the caliphs and goes and lives out in the desert and gives to the poor and fights against the elites and fights against uh, the, the wealthy. He reads this novel and reads the story and he translates it very liberally. He doesn't do a good job translating it from Arabic into Farsi, but it inspires him deeply. And Ali Shariati begins to develop his own version of Shiism that he calls Red Shiism, which is different from the Black Shiism of the Ayatollahs, which was rooted in, in their power, uh, in their f autonomous financial ability, came from the fact that they were autonomous financially and rooted over their power in religious law and religious education. Ali Shariati sees something different. He's inspired by Abu Zar, and he sees Red Shiism as fundamentally revolutionary in spirit. And there's a fusion that happens between Marxist ideals and the martyrdom of Karbala that we talked about, the early martyrs of Shiism. He sees this and kind of fuses older Islamic concepts with Marxism. He's inspired by Franz Fanon, and he's inspired by the third worldism that emerges and liberation theology. And he takes all of this and he creates this new ideology in which the enlightened intelligentsia known as the Roshan Fikr or the Roshan Fikran, that is the enlightened thinkers, this religious intelligentsia, their job was to carry out two revolutions. A national revolution that is at the level of the nation state, which would fight against imperial domination, that is the influence of those people on the outside. So you can see how he's really a product of his moment, right? And a social revolution, which would rebel against and overthrow exploitation, that is the exploiting of the uh, working class and the poor by the elites, namely the Pahlavi and these uh, people in the parliament, etc. And if they did that, if you were able to have both of these revolutions, the, the kind of social revolution and the national revolution, you would then return to the old Islamic principle of nizam tawhid that is a unitary society, a classless society in which people are bound together by simple fate, by social justice, by taking care of the poor and the orphan. I'm going to give you guys a quote from Ali Shariati that I think articulates his vision quite well. He says, it is not enough to say we must return to Islam. We must specify which Islam, that of Abu Zar or that of Marwan the ruler. Both are called Islamic, but there is a huge difference between them. One is the Islam of the caliphate, of the palace and of the rulers. The other is the Islam of the people, of the exploited and of the poor. Moreover, it is not good enough to say that one should be concerned about the poor. The corrupt caliph said the same. True Islam is more than concerned. It instructs the believers to fight for justice, equality, and the elimination of poverty. So we see here that he's taking certain kind of Marxist ideas of sort of classless society, the, the relationship of the exploited to the exploiter, and he's reinterpreting it in Islamic concepts. He's using the, the story of, of Abu Zar and how Abu Zar contrasts with Marwan, that is the, the Khalif of the Umayyads, um, and how that 
uh, epitomizes his ideology of Islam. What he argues for is a red Islam, the red or the reddish Shiism, and that is revolutionary Shiism that fights for these things, justice, equality, and the elimination of poverty. And his ideas become extremely important, and they're very widespread, predominantly through cassette tapes. His lectures, his talks, his writings are are transferred around, and they create a sort of mass movement of people. Now, while you have these ideologies brewing in Iran, you have some major event that happens that really kind of starts to instigate massive change. So we've seen, we've seen this autonomous religious group fighting against a central authority or government, that is the Pahlavis now, originally it was the Qajars, but now it's the Pahlavis. The clerics are losing a great deal of power because their waqif was attacked and their religious institutions in the education and judicial system were attacked. The Pahlavis are really consolidating power, yet between these two, the religious elites and the Pahlavi, or the, the central authority, you had this new popular movement, Red Shiism, in, you know, inspired by Ali Shariati, starting to take root. But while this is going on internally, you still had those imperial forces. Remember, there is a history rhymes. We talked about this. And the tobacco protests were as a result of what? Remember, the British owning tobacco and the people rising up against that. Well, in 1952, the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. In 1952, the Iranian prime minister, democratically elected prime minister, we should say, Mohammad Mossadegh, cuts off relations with Britain. Britain was really trying to control Iran's oil. They had done so since the time of the Qajars. But the Iranian Prime Minister Mossadegh was trying to nationalize that oil. He was modernizing the nation state, he was modernizing this new Iran, and he was trying to bring oil back under the control of Iranians. This is Iranian oil after all. But Britain was very keen to retain its control over Iranian oil. It didn't want to give up that oil. It had had control over it since the time of the Qajar. So Churchill, that's right, Churchill, it's the same as cigar smoking, uh, we will fight them in the streets, we will fight them in the beaches. That Churchill, he reaches out to Eisenhower and he convinces him that Iran was a threat, that Iran was harboring secretly pro-Soviet sentiments. Now, this wasn't true. Mossadegh actually hated socialism very deeply. But that old threat of, oh, oh, Russia's going to get some territorial concessions. Remember, that's the reason why the British invade Afghanistan in the first place, right? Is to control, to block the British. Well, now the British and Americans are afraid that the Soviets might gain an influence. And so this sets a project Ajax into motion. 1953. This is an anti-Mosaddegh campaign that starts in April of that year. The project is directed by CIA Chief Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Kermit Roosevelt Jr. is the grandson, if I'm not mistaken, of Theodore Roosevelt and or FDR, whatever, one of the Roosevelts. I'm not an Americanist. But anyways, the chief, Kermit Roosevelt develops this program. And what he does is he gets the operatives within Iran to make threats against religious leaders. What this does is it makes it seem like Mossadegh is cracking down. That remember, the religious elites are already feeling attacked. They had the Waqifs taken from them, the religious, they were, the new justices were working around their judicial authority, the education system was modernized and so it was taken out of their hands. And now you're these operatives that were threatening religious readers. So it looked like the government was yet again cracking down on them. Simultaneously, the CIA really pushed the Shah. And this is a new Shah, not Reza Shah, but Muhammad Reza Shah, which was his son. They push Muhammad Reza Shah to remove Mosaddegh because as Shah, he has the power to do so. And so what they do is they force him to write a series of fermans. Fermans are religious edicts. But here's the thing. CIA chief Dr. Donald Wilbur literally writes those fermans and has them uh, basically transcribed by the Shah. So those those edicts written by the Shah are the CIA is literally written by the CIA. So anyways, the CIA gets the Shah to issue these firmans and remove Mossadegh. The third part of this prong is that they pay some guy named Fazlullah Zahedi. They pay him to join forces with the Shah's military 
and to lead a mass protest movement against Mosaday. All three of these components come together in a kind of crescendo. You have the religious elite who are feeling attacked. You have a mass movement that is technically paid by secret CIA operatives. And you have the Shah remove Mossadegh. Um, when the dust is settled, Zahedi, who is a paid CIA operative, is made the new prime minister and Mossadegh is arrested. The Shah, who was off in Rome, returns in August 22, and the new prime minister who is a CIA operative, signs a new deal that restores massive oil shares, both to the United States and Great Britain. Now, this is a moment of very serious tension. It's revealed, many people knew in Iran, that this was the influence of Great Britain and America. They didn't know to what degree, but there were rumors that the CIA had done this. And this caused a great, great deal of tension. At the same time, you had this new younger Shah, Mohammad Reza Shah, consolidating power in the same way that his father did. He leads what's known as the White Revolution in 1963, in which he creates a series of reforms that are meant to modernize the state, that are meant to uh, bring about a series of changes. Now, the problem with it is that even though he is a, a modernizer, and even though he is uh, a, a person who's trying to expand or improve the lives of the people, he is still, at the end of the day, an absolute monarchist. He's not interested in bringing democracy or republicanism into uh, Iran, no. But he does do certain things. First, he abolishes feudalism. He nationalizes forests and pasture land. He uh, privatizes uh, certain government-owned expenses. He creates a health corps, a literacy corps. He nationalizes water resources. He tries to stabilize prices. He creates free food for needy mothers, etc. There are actually 19 edicts. I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but they are all part of this thing called the White Revolution. But in order to enforce that everyone would be on board, he has this secret military police um, basically on his side. This military police is known as Savak. Now, I'm going to try to pronounce its name. It's a really long name, so I may, may mispronounce it. Sazemane etalati va aminate keshavar. Literally, the Organization of National Intelligence and Security. This, or, or Savak, as I mentioned, this secret police was the key to Muhammad Reza Shah's power. In the same way that the Qajars relied on sort of military might, even though that military might collapse, uh, Muhammad Reza Shah relied on Savak to carry out his orders. Savak uh, disappeared people, they killed people, they tortured people, political rivals disappeared. Uh, Muhammad Mosaddegh was literally placed under house arrest and, until he died. They did all sorts of things. I mean, we often talk about the kind of Iranian Islamic Republic of Iran today as torturing and or, or suppressing people. But we've got to remember that it starts with Savak first. And there's a lot of people with real D who are alive today whose family have has suffered at the hands of Muhammad Reza Shah. Now, the Iranian people, that resentment between the, the secret police of Muhammad Reza Shah, Savak, and this idea that you had foreign governments literally overthrow the democratically elected prime minister led to the crescendo of the 1979 revolution. Most people believe that the CIA and British intelligence had been involved, but there was no definitive proof until the early 2000s in which the documents were declassified. Actually, a very famous historian, Emily Rosenberg, fought very hard to declassify it. And when the documents were declassified, we now have literal proof from the report that this is not a conspiracy theory that the CIA did actually overthrow the democratically elected leader of Iran. So what happens is in 1979, you have a revolution. This is known as the Inqilabe Iran, the Islamic Revolution of Iran in 1979. What happens is the co a coalition of forces emerge, and this coalition overthrows the Pahlavi dynasty. Central to this coalition is a guy named Ayatollah Khomeini, and he emerges really in popular popularity in 1963. And he represents that sort of black Shiism that Ali Shariati was talking about. That is the, the Shiism of the clerics, the religious elites. And he was one of the main opponents of the Shah, specifically during the White Revolution. The white, on one hand, you had this white revolution that was trying to secularize Iran, that was trying to forcibly change it, right? It was forcibly 
creating all these land reforms. And many of these reforms, specifically the land ones, were targeting the clerics yet again. Ayatollah Khomeini saw the Shah as an enemy of the Islamic character of Iran. And so he fought against him in 1963. He opposed him. In fact, I think at one point he called him a, a wretched man. Um, and that ended up with Ayatollah Khomeini getting arrested. And he was arrested, and then he was released. This led to a series of protests. He was then released, only to be arrested again. And then he was forced out into exile. In fact, I think he was in exile for about 14 years or so. So he was gone for a long time. But Ayatollah Khomeini starts to imagine a new form of government that he says is neither East nor West, but an Islamic Republic. And that becomes the motto for the Iranian Revolution, neither East nor West Islamic Republic. That is a rejection of the kind of forces around Iran, right? We talked about Russia, Great Britain, and the United States, a rejection of those forces, East and West, and instead an Islamic Republic. That is a, a government that emerges out of either the Shiism of the clerics or the Shiism of Ali Shariati. And this form of government is called the Velayat Faqih. Now, now, that's a very difficult word to say. I always make my students say it. But the word Faqih, while sounding funny, actually means jurist. The Velayat Faqih means the guardianship of the jurist. That is, that the jurist, the Mujtahids, remember the very same people that were brought over during the Safavid dynasty, those people would have guardianship of the state. And what happens is a series of moments and clashes. There is a terrorist attack in a movie theater in August of 19, in the late 1970s. And this was a massive terrorist attack that led to a bunch of people dying. There was a Black Friday in September during, during the month of, uh, during the holy celebration of Eid. There was a massive protest against the Savak and the White Revolution. And it led to government forces opening fire on people. And then what happened is that the, all of these coalitions came together during the month of Muharram. Muharram is a holy month for Muslims and even more holy for Shiism. There was this call for massive protests. And Ayatollah Khomeini, from his place in exile, called for revolutions in the form of martyrdom. So once more invoking that commemorative quality in Shiism, but now interpreting it in revolutionary qualities. And this met and, and intersected with Ali Shariati's more populist movement and Red Shiism. These two groups started to see eye to eye. Even though they were, they, they were separate movements, they saw themselves as unified against this elite centralized Pahlavi dynasty under Muhammad Reza Shah. They were joined by the secularists and the people on the far left, the leftists, the Marxists, the communists, the, the socialists. There was actually a, a Marxist uh, group, a kind of secularist terrorist group known as the Fidayin, who were carrying out a series of terrorist attacks. And this is, again, part of the kind of forgotten history of terrorism, is the earliest terrorists are actually secularists, not religious people. But all of these people formed a, a kind of movement, a mass movement. And the protests waxed and waned, but the month of Muharram in particular, when they came together and they protested, protest against the Shah was big. It was such a massive protest that the Shah didn't know what to do. And he kind of vacillated on what he needed to do in response. On one hand, he gave Savak authority to open fire on people. On the other hand, he was he kind of didn't know when to start. And that led to kind of uneven responses to the protest. On one hand, heavy-handed suppression, and on the other hand, just kind of losing control of the situation. And as these people were dying, Ayatollah Khomeini was continuously talking about martyrdom. He was saying that the tree of Islam was being watered with the blood of martyrs. And this led to February 2nd, 1979, in which finally there was a shift. The Iranian revolution had happened. What had happened was the Shah was forced out of the country and Ayatollah Khomeini was welcomed back. He was returned triumphant. Now came the moment of building a new government. Out of this moment of coalitions coming together, the desire for fighting against exploitation, this desire to create an equal society, you have the birth of the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is to say, at the heart of the Islamic Republic of Iran is protest and revolution. From the very beginnings of the Shah Ismail's consolidation of power, to the moment of the tobacco protests, to the constitutional revolution, to the white revolution, to the Islamic revolution, there is this 
desire for protest, this desire for creating a just society. And we can see also very importantly how the forces of clerical Shiism with the popular Shiism of Ali Shariati versus leftist ideas, all of these kind of come together and fight against the tension of a centralized authority. This new Islamic Republic would continue the parliamentary system that existed during the constitutional revolution, the Persian constitutional revolution. There would still be a parliament, there would still be elections but that there would now be a superstructure above the democracy, and that would be the guardianship of the jurist. The faqih would ensure that Islamic law created a just and equitable society. This was the very promise of the Islamic revolution. Now, the Iranian revolution was hated by the uh, American government. They hated it. It was considered a major threat. It was also seen as a threat by Saudi Arabia because for the first time you had a government that dis that argued that its legitimacy was based on Islam. That was a threat to the ideology of Saudi Arabia, which was using Wahhabi Islam as its legitimization. It's also the reason why Wahhabi Islam then starts to send terrorists into Afghanistan to fight against the Russians. It was them flexing their power, their fear that there was now another competitor on the kind of Islamic market, if you will. So what happens is that at the heart of the Iranian revolution and the heart of the Islamic government is this promise of equitableness, this promise that no matter what happens, governments will be elected, the governments will come and go, but there is this guardianship of the faqih, and that they would ensure that, that they weren't just concerned about poverty, like Ali Shariati said, but that they would fight and abolish a, po a poverty, that they would create a unitarian society. These all came to a head recently. After the Iran deal with Obama, Rouhani, who is a reformist president, that is, he wants to create a better society. He's not a hardliner or conservative. He's a very reformist president. He was open to negotiating with the West, which had cut all ties with the Iran with Iran because part of the Iranian revolution ended in protest to America's interference to the democratic election. It was the seizing of an embassy. You can watch that stupid movie. What's what is it called with a uh, Ben Affleck? It's called something or another. But not Pearl Harbor. It's called something. It's he's he he it's a far no it's a far Argo Argo it's called Argo. I called it I nearly called it Fargo, which is a place. All right, that were another a completely different movie that has nothing to do with Iran. But Argo is the movie and it talks about the seizing of the embassy as a result of that from the Jimmy Carter times up until Reagan because the prisoners weren't released until Reagan's election. America's cut off all ties. Obama was the first time that we opened up these things, the, the, the kind of relationship now. But the problem is from the Iranian perspective is that the nuclear deal, the so-called nuclear deal, the deal was that they would cut this and they would receive money that had been held by the American government. This was Iranian money, let's be clear. This is money for Iran that the United States had frozen in their accounts, that they would receive that money and this would somehow jumpstart the economy because Iran had been under a series of crippling sanctions and those sanctions were hurting the everyday Iranians, not the government. The government was functioning. It was ordinary people that were suffering. So Rouhani cuts this deal, but in the process, he overpromises. He says it's going to rebuild our economy, it's going to bring all this money. Again, trying to recapture that spirit of the 1979 revolution of a just society, of a, of a classless society, a unitarian society, of, a, of the uh, abolishment of poverty. When that doesn't happen over the past several years, that doesn't come about. Since the Obama's uh, deal to this moment, this leads to a series of economic resentments. This leads to frustration. Now, people are talking about, oh, frustration with the Islamic Republic. And sure, people are frustrated with the Islamic Republic. But make no mistake, the people that are protesting are also Muslims. They're not saying that they want to eliminate Islam. They are Muslims, but they want to return to the original promise of Shariati and the Islamic revolution. And that is the, the abolishment of poverty. They're saying, look, you've got this money from America. We got our money back. Why hasn't our economy improved? Why is it that we are at, at almost 30% unemployment rate amongst the youth population? Why are cities like Sukhum and others suffering? And so this is a, a, a fight back against that and really once more recapitulating the kind of very same spirit that led to the original revolution in 1979. There's this long continuity here. The other component that we should mention is that of gender and of women. I'm a historian of gender. I've got to mention it. At the heart of the Iranian revolution is a gendered revolution. Remember that the Pahlavis banned and tried to control what women wore. 
And so women in defiance wore hijabs and chadats. Wearing religious garb was an act of defiance against this government that was trying to control what they wore. And they were the vanguard of the Iranian revolution at the forefront, leading the marches and the charges. Now, the Iranian revolution produced a government that in turn did the exact same thing that the Pahlavis did, but in the other direction. The Pahlavis banned women from wearing chadats. And then the Islamists under the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini force women to wear headscarves. So it's always there's always someone trying to control what women wear, but on one side or the other. And so now it's an act of taking off the hijab. It's why you see these protest movements in which women will take off the headscarf, because it is an act of defiance, in the same way that putting it on was an act of defiance. Hopefully this helps to contextualize a little bit of what's going on today. It is the same spirit of revolution that we see within Shia Islam that is reinterpreted in a kind of modern nationalist context that is interpreted as a creation of a just society, a society that abolishes of poverty, that creates equality that creates a classless society that is at the heart of a protest movement that begins with the establishment of Shiism in the Iranian plateau that develops as a tension between a religious elite, populist religion, and a centralized authority. And how a coalition forms out of that to overthrow the centralized authority and create or an experiment. That is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that experiment is, is to try to create a just society. Now, does it work? No. The Islamic Republic of Iran has a lot of serious problems with it, from civil rights abuses and human rights abuses to the treatment of women, to the treatment of, of sexual minorities, the gay, LGBT, even ethnic minorities, Afghans and Armenians and others. There's a lot of things that the Islamic Republic has failed to do. And so what are Iranians doing? They're doing what they do best. They're doing what they've been doing for hundreds of years. And that is rising up against their government and demanding the creation of an equal and a just society. These protests are part of a longer history. And it is also because of that history, because of the history of 1952 and 53, in which the United States got involved and overthrew the democratically elected government, why it is utterly essential that the U.S. stay out of these current protests. You can best support these protesters from afar, hope for their success, hope that they create a better society for their future, but don't get involved. Don't try to stick your head in and meddle because that history is still alive. People remember what happened the last time the United States got involved. They overthrew the democratically elected republic, the democratically elected prime minister. This history is beautiful. It's alive today, and it's what we're seeing unfolding before our eyes. Hopefully, this podcast was useful to you. Hopefully, you'll gain something from it. If you're interested in learning more about this, I highly recommend Ali Muzaffari's book, uh, Formations of Iran, which is a fantastic, fantastic uh, text. Other than that, hit me up on social media if you have any questions about this. You can use the hashtag Head on History or hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. And on that note, thank you too for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. 